Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, March 22nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The AI built to tell pastries apart that's now being used for cancer research. It turns out a large portion of Mars's water may be hiding in the planet's crust. And if one of your online orders got lost, it may now be lurking at the bottom of the ocean. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There's a bakery chain in Japan that offers dozens of different kinds of pastries. Danishes, donuts, croissants, sandwiches. You go down a cafeteria-style line, pick what you want, put it on a tray, and when you get to the register to pay, you put your tray on top of a backlit rectangle. A screen shows an image of your tray with bright green lines around each item. It recognizes each item from among the dozens of pastries on offer at that bakery and then correctly charges you. How does it do that? You'd imagine it's some kind of relatively recent development in deep learning and neural networks, but in fact, it's a more homegrown technology that got its start in 2007, led by a man named Hisashi Kambi. The New Yorker recently profiled Kambi's work with the bakery and how the technology he developed is now being deployed in many other sectors, including cancer research. So let's start with the bread problem. Japanese consumers like lots of options, and bread is no exception. Market research in Japan showed that a bakery that offered 100 different options sold twice as much as a bakery that offered only 30, and that unwrapped baked goods sold better because people perceived them as fresh. But without the wrapping, you don't have labels or barcodes on the pastries, so then you've got employees who have to memorize 100 different pastries. And this slowed down lines because workers would often mix things up or have to take time remembering which pastry was which, not to mention they handled each unwrapped pastry individually, so it wasn't exactly the most sanitary. So this chain wanted to automate the process somehow, and they turned to Combi's company, Brain, to help them out. Brain had already been working for 20 years on finding ways for computers to see, something that was long one of the biggest challenges of artificial intelligence. The New Yorker explains it really well, quote, As I write this, I can look up at my shelves. They contain books and a skein of yarn and a tangled cable, all inside a cabinet whose glass enclosure is reflecting leaves in the trees outside my window. I can't help but parse this scene. About a third of the neurons in my cerebral cortex are implicated in processing visual information. But to a computer, it's a mess of color and brightness and shadow. A computer has never untangled a cable, doesn't get that glass is reflective, doesn't know that trees sway in the wind. AI researchers used to think that without some kind of model of how the world worked and all that was in it, a computer might never be able to distinguish the parts of complex scenes. The field of computer vision was a zoo of algorithms that made do in the meantime. End quote. Over the last decade, this has changed as deep learning and neural networks have been applied and tweaked in real-world scenarios. Siri, Google Translate, and AlphaGo all rely on deep learning with layers of simulated neurons. And they're honed by things like tagging people in photos on social media and picking out streetlights in those prove-you're-not-a-robot tests on website forms.
But especially without that kind of passively crowdsourced assistance, quoting again, the drawback of deep learning is that it requires large amounts of specialized data. A deep learning system for recognizing faces might have to be trained on tens of thousands of portraits, and it won't recognize a dress unless it's also been shown thousands of dresses. Deep learning researchers therefore have learned to collect and label data on an industrial scale, end quote. And for Brain and the bakery chain, not only would the frequency with which the bakery chain changed their offerings make such data required for learning the new pastries be untenable, they were also several years too early to even consider using deep learning. So they built their own system, using lots and lots of algorithms. By 2010, they had built a system with 99% accuracy across 50 types of bread, tackling problems like different pastries that look remarkably similar, and the same pastries that look different when one is baked more or one got squished, as well as developing the backlight the pastries have to be placed on to keep the lighting consistent, even though they did have to also build a mathematical model to account for inconsistencies in color when it comes to bake times. Rather than showing a system thousands of photos of each pastry, as one would with a deep learning system, they manually tweaked and honed the algorithms on each donut and danish until they got it right. But their system learns, too. When the system isn't sure, instead of those green lines around each item, it shows yellow or red lines, and prompts the user to select from some suggestions or manually input the product. Quoting again, Show bakery scan a pastry never seen on Earth, and it'll recognize the next one of its kind about 40% of the time. According to Brain, after just five examples, it is 90% accurate, and after 20, it's nearly perfect. Moreover, whereas deep learning systems are relatively inscrutable, you can't look at a neural network and say exactly why a decision emerged from it, bakery scans judgments, based as they are on a hand-engineered system, are more articulable. If the system misidentifies something, you can figure out why. These days, it's unusual to develop AI in the way that Brain developed Bakery Scan. The approach requires a mastery of fine details. It is, in spirit, artisanal. It takes years, during which parameters must be tuned and special cases accounted for. Deep learning relieves you from having to understand how the seasons affect the shadows in a donut hole. You merely plug in enough examples and the network figures it out. And with deep learning, the same brain can accomplish different tasks when you feed it different data. DeepMind, the Alphabet subsidiary, used different datasets to train a single neural network to beat humans at chess, shogi, and go. Systems that depend on domain-specific knowledge, as BakerySCAN does, need not just new data, but new filters, new features, and new algorithms before they can be used elsewhere. End quote. Nonetheless, the technology behind BakerySCAN, now housed under the umbrella name of AI-SCAN, has gone on to be used in applications as far-flung as distinguishing pills in hospitals to counting the number of people in 18th century woodblock prints, and even spotting incorrectly wired bolts in jet engine parts. But the most impressive application came in 2017, when, quoting again, a doctor at the Louis Pasteur Center for Medical Research in Kyoto saw a television segment about BakerySCAN, he realized that cancer cells, under a microscope, looked kinda like bread, end quote. I love that observation, but he was right. AI Scan has now been working for a few years on fine-tuning their cancer cell detector, CytoAscan. Now being tested at two hospitals, it's able to look at an entire microscope slide and identify potentially cancerous cells with 99% accuracy, based on features like the color tone, size, and texture of the nucleus, and overall roundness of the cell. 
As they continue to grow and build on their original system, Brain has had to bring in deep learning once recently. When COVID-19 pushed bakery owners to start wrapping their pastries in individual packaging, Brain used deep learning to help their bakery scan system still be able to identify the pastries behind the reflective plastic packaging. New findings published last week in the journal Science indicate that much of Mars's water may actually be beneath the surface, specifically in the planet's crust, as opposed to having escaped outward towards space. This process, called crustal hydration, could have been responsible for eliminating anywhere from 30 to 99% of the water on ancient Mars. These findings are based on modeling and data from Mars rovers, probes, and meteorites. Quoting Space.com, Prior work found Mars was once wet enough to cover its entire surface with an ocean of water about 330 to 4,920 feet deep, containing about half as much water as Earth's Atlantic Ocean, NASA said in a statement. Since there's life virtually everywhere on Earth where there's water, this history of water on Mars raises the possibility that Mars was once home to life and might host it still. However, Mars is now cold and dry. Previously, scientists thought that after the red planet lost its protective magnetic field, solar radiation and the solar wind stripped it of much of its air and water. The amount of water Mars still possesses in its atmosphere and ice would only cover it with a global layer of water about 65 to 130 feet thick." End quote. And that process of stripping the planet of its water would have taken a lot of time. Quoting The Verge, The rate at which the water could have escaped the atmosphere, paired with the predicted amount of water that once existed on the Martian surface, didn't quite line up with modern observations of the planet. If that persisted through the past 4 billion years, it can only account for a small fraction of water loss, says Renyu Hu, one of the study's co-authors. That left researchers with a key question. Where exactly did the water on Mars go? The study, led by Eva Scheller, a graduate student in geology at Caltech studying planetary surface processes, might offer an answer. The study finds that most of the water loss occurred during Mars's Noachian period between 3.7 billion to 4.1 billion years ago. During that time, the water on Mars could have interacted and fused with minerals in the planet's crust, in addition to escaping the planet's atmosphere. Water can break down rocks through a process called chemical weathering, which sometimes results in minerals becoming hydrated. Hydrated minerals take up and store water, locking it away. For example, gypsum, a water-soluble mineral found naturally on Mars, can keep its water trapped unless heated at temperatures higher than 212 degrees Fahrenheit. End quote. And scientists have kept an eye on water-bearing minerals on Mars's surface since at least around 2006 using NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, but Michael Meyer, the lead scientist for NASA's Mars Exploration Program, explains that it's tough to put all the dots together without being able to measure the thickness of layers. Those kinds of measurements, however, are exactly what landers and rovers like Mars Perseverance are able to provide. Perseverance didn't provide measurements for this study, which was instead just a result of the accumulation of more and more data over time from sources like NASA's MAVEN and the ESA's Mars Express Orbiter. However, the samples Perseverance is expected to retrieve from the Jezero crater could absolutely help the team test their model in the future. For one thing, those samples could help them narrow down that huge 30 to 99% range, which varies so widely because of an unknown in the rate at which Mars lost water. 
And it's not going to be easy to extract what water is there. It would require heating a lot of rocks just to get a decent amount. As such, experts like Christopher Adcock, a planetary geochemist at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, says this finding doesn't change the game, but he says, quote, it is certainly an encouraging reminder that the water we need for long-term human missions to Mars might be right at our feet when we get there, end quote. For the most part, the extreme shipping delays that you may have experienced at the start of the pandemic and around the holidays have mostly cleared up. But if you're ordering anything coming from overseas, be wary. Quoting Wired, Since the end of November, this is some of what has sunk to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Vacuum cleaners, Kate Spade accessories, at least $150,000 of frozen shrimp, and three shipping containers full of children's clothes. All told, at least 2,980 containers have fallen off cargo ships in the Pacific since November in at least six separate incidents. That's more than twice the number of containers lost annually between 2008 and 2019, according to the World Shipping Council." End quote. Now, some of this is due to a pandemic-driven surge in imports in North America, much of it is weather-related, and some of it is also caused by something called parametric rolling. Quoting again, Parametric rolling is a rare but scary, violent motion that can send blocks of containers tumbling to deck or into the sea. It happens when the time that passes between two adjacent waves suddenly lines up with the natural roll frequency of a ship, something that's more likely to happen in bad weather. Adrian Onos, a professor of naval architecture at the Webb Institute, calls this a heart attack of design, difficult to detect when it's beginning, and then devastating. On board, parametric rolling feels like abrupt, terrifying side-to-side -side movement, which quickly changes from just a few degrees to up to 35 or 40 degrees in each direction. Parametric rolling is a bigger deal in container ships than other vessels because they're designed to move goods quickly across the ocean. As a result, container ships aren't always that stable, says Onus. Add six stories of containers to 35-degree rolling motions, and you get extremely fast acceleration at the top of the container stack. Containers aren't secured to withstand such forces, Onus says, so they begin to fall. End quote. Usually, it's a rare phenomenon, but there are a few reasons it may be happening more lately. One is that completely full containers are more susceptible to falling, and most of the containers right now are packed to the brim. But also, this incredible demand, U.S. container imports in December 2020 were 30% higher than in December 2019, has led to a shortage of containers. So some shippers may be using older containers, which may have some defective or corroded elements. Now, theoretically, shipping containers could be designed to better prevent parametric rolling, and crews could be trained to interrupt the motion, but that would all take time and money. The latter of which hasn't been justified in the past due to the relative rarity of the phenomenon, and the former would mean even if they started now, it could be years before we saw any results. Still, with the increase in incidents and various companies who have lost their product lawyering up, we may indeed see some of those changes being implemented. Until then, Richard Westenberger, chief financial officer of the children's clothing brand Carter's, joked, quote, If anybody has investments in deep sea salvage, there's some beautiful product down there. End quote. The 
So despite not having watched a DC movie since Man of Steel, for some reason last night I decided to start watching the Snyder Cut of the Justice League. I got about halfway through, might finish it tonight if I don't dive into that new QAnon documentary on HBO Max. But anyways, I bring this up because if you have already watched it, or you haven't but aren't invested enough to care about spoilers, I definitely recommend checking out Leslie Jones's Twitter, where she shared her reactions to watching pretty much the entire movie. Leslie Jones has spent the better part of the last year posting her live reactions to watching the news and commenting on both serious matters and more lighthearted topics like rating people's at-home Zoom backgrounds. Her takes are seriously hilarious, clever, often impassioned, and sometimes just, like, really pure and relatable. You know, she's really open about when she's learning something new for the first time, and it's just refreshing for someone to be so genuine. But yeah, go check out the Leslie Jones cut of the Snyder cut of the Justice League in the very accessible format of dozens of unthreaded 20-second Twitter videos. Link in the show notes. Also, there's an excellent drone footage video going around of the currently erupting volcano at Fagradalsfjall in Iceland. Jason shared it on Kaki.org. I'll link to it here, too. But I also wanted to point you towards a live stream of the volcano, which you can watch and check back in on periodically. The eruption, though relatively small and non-threatening, is being treated a bit more cautiously today as the weather has gotten windier. Yesterday, there were tons of photos and videos going around of locals hanging out quite close to the lava, but it's mostly cleared out of spectators today. The volcano is only around 40 kilometers, or about 25 miles, from Iceland's capital of Reykjavik, and there hasn't been an eruption that close to the capital in nearly 800 years. So, were the situation to get worse, it would certainly be concerning, but so far, it all seems alright, and you can keep an eye on it by watching the live stream if you want. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.